0: Well, it's been a great uh, Sunday so far, and I hope not to screw it up anymore. And uh, we're starting a new series today, and it's going to be great when bad was good. And uh, last Sunday, we talked about uh, kind of the ingredients that produce spiritual growth. And you'll recall that one of the issues is passionate ministry. When people are involved uh, in a way... In their community, in their church, they grow spiritually. And so, again, so have, uh, thankful for our volunteers. And Easter Sunday, we have an opportunity to uh, minister at City Center Church, an inner city church. They put on a dinner for those in their neighborhood, and uh, we get an opportunity to partner with them in addition to giving them financial help to pay for the dinner you can volunteer to be part of the service team on Sunday after the service. So if you want to participate, just let us know. Write that on your connection card or uh, just visit the information center at the end of the service. And as mentioned, Easter Sunday is coming and we have an opportunity to invite our friends to be part of that day. It's going to be a great day, and inside your program is an invitation like this. Would you take that and use it to invite some of your friends to be part of our Easter Sunday? On the back is our Alpha uh, uh, opportunity, which begins on April 25th. It's a great environment, a meal, a video. We explore questions that people have about Jesus, about life. And uh, you won't want to miss that opportunity to come and bring a friend to be part of Alpha. I want to say welcome to those who are listening online. And uh, your notes are in your program this morning, or you can take your smartphone on your v- Uversion app. Look for, look for the, um, the opportunity for events. Click on Circle Drive Church, and the notes will come up. You can save them and... You can share them. So this morning, we're starting when bad was good. If you're not a believer and you're here today, we, we just want to welcome you. Uh, glad that you're part of this service. Uh, you're gonna po- I'm going to point out some things about Christians that you probably already know, already bugs you about Christians. And uh, it might make a few Christians squirm, but I'm good at that. So we're just going to do it. This morning we sang some songs uh, to Jesus. We said that Jesus is enough, and he can meet all of our needs. And many of us really believe that as we sing it. It's our prayer. It's our desire. It's our hope. But If we are a church person, and some of you who are not believers and know that this this is your experience, one of the things that you might find strange about church people is often we resist the God we say that we trust. Isn't that true? Often Christians resist the God we say we trust. In fact, if church people were honest, would we not agree that we sometimes have an internal battle with God and find ourselves resisting the God we say that we love and trust? In fact, some of you are in the middle of it right now. You're having this uh, conversation with God in this struggle with God. He's, he's asking something of you for your own good. And we sing, Jesus is enough but we want to resist the very thing that God is talking to you about. You know you should forgive, but you resist. You know you should get out of that relationship, but you resist. You know you should stop that habit, but you resist. You know you should get out of debt, but you keep spending. You know you should be more generous. You know you should tithe. You know... You should, but you resist the very God that's requiring of it. Your heart, your conscience, the Scripture tells you what is right. You're trying to be a follower of Jesus, but you're resisting the God you say that you trust. Now, there's a word that describes this, and the word is hypocrisy. And Christians are known for this that we actually don't walk or talk. Now, most of us understand this because it's hard to surrender our life to a God who speaks through conscience and an ancient book, book. But still, this is an ongoing battle for many of us. So, in the weeks ahead, as we approach Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, there were some characters in the story that intersected with Jesus. Each of these characters had an agenda that put him at odds with Jesus. And what can be disturbing is that there is a little bit of them in us. And we will see the futility of resisting God and see how God can turn bad things into good. Now, the first character we want to look at and examine this morning is a guy by the name of Joseph Caiaphas. He was the high priest during the time of Jesus' life. He was the most powerful and influential person in Jerusalem and what we would consider ancient Israel at the time. Caiaphas was the connecting point between Israel and Rome. You remember that Israel was under the domination and rule of Rome. And so there was kind of a go between Rome and Israel to keep things normative, keep everybody happy and in their place. And Caiaphas connected with the Roman leader in the Roman garrison, who at that time was the person of Pilate. Pilate and Caiaphas really did not like each other. They tolerated one another. They were kind of, you know, they they had a use for each other, and so they related in that kind of way. Caiaphas was part of the family that controlled the temple, the politics of the day, the religion, and the power that came with the temple for over 40 years. Longevity. His father-in-law was a high priest, Five of his brother-in-laws were high priests. So this was kind of like a dynasty, a kind of a dictatorship. It had power, influence, extraordinary wealth. There were financial perks that came with being uh, the high priest, being in the center of Jewish religion. Because Jews all over the world paid a temple tax So the equivalent of millions of dollars flowed into this 32-acre parcel of land called the temple in the middle of Jerusalem. So much money flowed into the temple that the Romans tried numerous times to pass laws to prevent the temple tax. So Caiaphas had wealth. He had power. So things went well for him until he met Jesus. And then things went south. When Jesus showed up, the problem with Jesus was three things. First of all, the crowds. The crowds. Now, it wasn't the teaching of Jesus necessarily that drew the crowds because there were lots of bizarre ideas around at the time. But everywhere that Jesus went, there were crowds of people, and that was a problem. This was a threat to Rome and the Jewish system because crowds meant the potential of possible insurrection, of division, of civil war. It was kind of the Me Too and Yellow Vest movement of the day. Caiaphas and company never drew crowds, well, except for special days like, you know, Jewish festivals and so on. But on the normal days, they never drew the crowds that Jesus drew. The second problem was extraordinary authority. When Jesus spoke he did so with authority and people noticed. They noticed. Uh, Remember the time that Jesus walked into the temple and kicked over the tables of the money and drove out the money changers and the religious leaders sent Caiaphas to approach Jesus. And his question wasn't What do you think you're doing? His question was, Who do you think you are? He was challenging the authority of Jesus. The third problem was Jesus' criticism of the religious leaders. You recall one of the rants that Jesus uh, made was recorded in Matthew 23. And there Jesus vented his opinion of the religious leaders. He did not respect the corruption and misuse of the, of the temple at the time, and he calls out Caiaphas, and he calls them blind guides, he calls them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, brood of vipers, and he said, you're going to hell. I mean, did Jesus not read uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People? I mean, he just vented all of this stuff, all of his feelings about these religious leaders, little wonder that Caiaphas had problems with Jesus. And then Jesus threatened the peace, and that built throughout all of the Gospels. The final straw was something that Jesus did. It was an act of compassion. A famous uh, person in the city of Bethany, by the name of Lazarus, died and was buried. And the people in Bethany went to the funeral of Lazarus. And then the next uh, thing that they saw was Lazarus at the local coffee shop. He's come out of the grave alive. And they come up to him and say, hey, Laz, I was at your funeral. What are you doing here? And he's, he's coming out of the grave alive. And the crowds observed this. They overflowed. And up to that time, they tried discrediting Jesus by Giving him trick questions, Jesus would have come back and the religious leaders would look stupid. So their strategy was not working. And now Lazarus comes out of the grave alive and the people went crazy like, wow, who does this? Now here's the thing when you come to the gospel of John, and John is an old man when he's writing this gospel. He's an eyewitness to Lazarus. And in John 12, he says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. I mean, talk about popularity. So the religious leaders are frustrated because all of their attempts to squash Jesus are failing and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they're throwing up their hands and they're saying, oh, this is not good for us. Like, what are we going to do? So previously, John gives us some inside information which he obtained as he wrote the book of John. Once Jesus came out of the grave alive, when he was resurrected, some of the Pharisees came to Christ. They came and were part of the movement of Jesus. And so John had the inside scoop as to what the Pharisees and religious leaders were saying after uh, Lazarus came out of the grave. And you find this in John 11. So some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Now notice there were three groups that John identifies here and none of them got along theologically. The Pharisees, or the Sadducees rather, were part of the group that did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. None of these groups got along politically or have some of the same ideas about how to relate to Rome. It was a bit like the Conservatives and Liberals and NDP who believe in Canada but have a different idea about uh, what agenda that Canada should have. So these three groups got together, kind of a bipartisan uh, arrangement, and they said this. What are we accomplishing, they asked. the, The harder we try, the larger the groups get. The crowds keep getting bigger and bigger here's this man performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, just think about this. Think about the authority they thought they had. If If we allow him to keep going on like this, they've taken their authority to a level of craziness, everyone would believe in him. To which we say, that's the point. That's the point. That's, that's, so what? These religious people knew that there was something about Jesus they should pay attention to. You would think that in their heart of hearts, they knew that to resist Jesus was to resist God. They knew that if they followed Jesus, it would cost them something. It would cost their power. It would cost their popularity. It would cost their wealth. They knew They needed to surrender. And then they said the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And isn't that where we are? When you decide to follow Jesus, it will cost you something. Let me say that again. When you decide to follow Jesus, it will cost you something. And isn't that... The reason some of us have a hard time following Jesus. This is the reason why some of you resisted church for so long. We resist church because it's going to cost us Sunday morning. And then if we come Sunday morning, they're going to want us some of our time. And then they'll want some of our money. And it's going to cost us something. So I don't want to be part of it. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to stay away from it. If I make a commitment to Jesus, we say... Then I'll, especially if you're a young person, if I make a commitment to Jesus, then I'm going to have to date Christians. And we know all the hot girls are in the club and they're not in church, right? And if I'm single, I can't do whatever I want to do. So to be single in our culture will also cost us something. So the religious leaders rightly said, what do we do with this Jesus? Because to follow him will cost us something. And then there's Jesus. The crowd's following Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And when somebody raises a dead person, you want to follow that guy, don't you? And then verse 49 says, then one of them named Caiaphas, here's our character, who was the high priest that year spoke up so he had something to add to this argument what do we do with Jesus because his popularity is going through the roof and he says this you know nothing at all a lot of confidence in his voice you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people now I wonder if he realized what he was saying, how profound this was, that it's really not about us, it's about the people. He says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Guys, he says, this is not complicated. This is not rocket science. If we get, of one, get rid of one man, our problem is solved, and we're better off. You can just imagine John, this old man, writing down the Gospel of John. And he's got a pen in his hand, writing on the parchment. And he must have had a grin on his face as he's recounting the people involved in the experiences of of the events firsthand. He had incredible conversations with people in the back rooms as to the events and their perspective. And he's writing this as an old man. And he says, he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own. He was saying they had no idea what they were even saying. But his high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And John is saying, of these religious people, little did they know that when they were resisting Jesus, they were actually participating in the plan of God. In the end, death actually multiplied Jesus' influence. Bad became good. Bad became good. So here we are. We're back to where we started today. At the end of the day, my life and your life will ultimately illustrate the futility of resisting God. We will be illustrations of people who said, yes, yes, even though it's going to cost me, or no, because it's going to cost me something. But in the end, we will each illustrate the futility of resisting God. We were not created for our glory, but we were created for the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Rick Warren's book called The Purpose-Driven Life. The very first line of the book, he says, Life is not about me. And that's really a profound truth. And so John writes. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They plotted to take Jesus' life. And as John reflects and remembers Jesus' own words, Jesus said in John 10, the reason my Father loves me is that I I lay down my life only to take it up again. It wasn't the people. It wasn't Rome. Jesus laid down his life. And verse 18 says, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. From my Father. And as John reflects on what the religious leaders plotted and carried out, he remembers what Jesus said about it. And from God's perspective, it must have broke God's heart to hear people plotting his son's death. Yet at the same time, must have thought, if only they knew the end of the story. If only they knew that when he laid down his life, he was doing it willingly, and he will pick it up again. And through that act of selfless love, our lives will be better. The religious leaders, together with Rome, succeeded in killing Jesus. The threat was eliminated. Their position was secure as a nation. And I would have liked to have been there the day the sun rose on the first day of the week after Passover. During the days that led to the Passover, there was the crucifixions, the thieves on the cross and Jesus there and the crowds were gathering and mocking them and spitting in their face and crowds gathered and then their bodies were taken down and laid to rest. And then it was silent. There was commotion outside of Caiaphas's home and then he heard somebody open the door and run down the hall and Threw open the door and he says, Sir, Caiaphas, the body of Jesus is missing. Caiaphas says, What do you mean it's missing? And he said, It's gone. There are grave clothes in the tomb, but there is no Jesus. I don't know where he is. Nobody knows where he is gone. And then in a few days, there were sightings of Jesus around the city, meeting with disciples and the women. He appeared to crowds all at once. And Jesus' closest followers would come out of hiding and walk the streets of Jerusalem and say, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. We have seen him. Why don't you say I'm sorry? And again, there were crowds and crowds and crowds of people rallying around the name of Jesus because of his resurrection from the dead. And I bet well, I was a betting man, I bet Caiaphas would like to have had that one back. I bet you he sat in his room and he realized that Jesus had done more in his dying than he had did in his living. And years later, years later, Caiaphas lost his place. The Jews lost their temple. And those who tried to stop the plan of God are footnotes in the story of Jesus Christ. And you say, what does that have to do with me? I would say to you this morning that there is a little Caiaphas in all of us. And it says, preserve at all costs. Preserve at all costs. Preserve my reputation. Preserve my relationships. Preserve my empire. And we find ourselves thinking, And sometimes praying, God, help me to do this, help me to preserve, or get out of the way. Get out of the way. And God, being a perfect gentleman, sometimes gets out of your way. And here's the thing. Here's what we learned from Caiaphas. We discover this the hard way. Whatever it is that is in the center of your life that's replaced God, is already diminishing in value and insignificance. If there's a position that you are bound and determined to get, a relationship that you're bound and determined to preserve, or you cheat on your grade point average so that you can get into that university, and you say, I must preserve at all costs, whatever, whatever replaces God, will ultimately disappoint. Your greatest regrets, if you're honest, your greatest regrets in life are connected to your attempts to preserve something that is not part of your life anymore. That thing, that relationship, that person you were clinging to, like Caiaphas with his position, has diminished in value. Because when you replace something with God, the fuse is being lit. It will disappoint. Just give it time. The pressure to preserve will eventually drive you to self-destructive behaviors, and it will hurt others. And eventually, the attempt to preserve something that you had no business preserving will not be part of your life anymore you will wake up one day and you will say to yourself, why did I pursue that? It is interesting that the religious leaders, Caiaphas the high priest, who must, who must have taught, thou shalt not murder. I mean, this guy, Caiaphas was the steward of the law and had access to the oldest copies of the law, had an innocent person murdered because he wanted to preserve his position. Verse 10, it says the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Interesting. Our desire to preserve becomes insane. And whatever is in the center of your life that replace God is already diminishing in value and significance. The second thing that Caiaphas teaches us is our capacity for evil and our capacity for sin is extraordinary when we are trying to preserve something in place of God. Think about this a man of the law trying to murder an innocent man and somebody who came out of the grave alive to preserve his position when he knew what the law was saying. Our greatest regrets are connected to seasons of life or weekends in our life or relationships in our life or spring breaks of our life that we tried to prop up. And these little gods will always disappoint. Do you know how many people that I talk to wish they could go back to their teens And could make some decisions all over again. We wish we could remake it. We wish we could wipe the slate clean and our conscience could be clean once again. The story of Caiaphas reminds us of something we dare not forget. That saying yes to God will cost you something. Make no mistake, coming to Christ costs us something. But saying no will cost you even more. It will cost you even more. It will cost you everything, including what you put in place of God to begin with. Can I ask you this morning, just in the quietness of your own heart, you know what God's saying to you. You know what he's talking to you about. What have you put in place of God in your life? What is it? What is dead center? What is the thing that you talk to God about and you say, God, out there in the periphery of my life, help me keep this and don't take this away from me? Or I am done with you, God. I'm done with you. And we bargain with God and we resist God, what is that thing? Because that little God will ultimately disappoint you. Caiaphas made a bad decision. He resisted Jesus the Messiah and was willing to kill somebody, kill Jesus Christ to preserve his empire, and he lost it all in his attempt to preserve The bad decision, though, in God's book, led to good. It led to good. For one man ended up dying so the nation would not perish. That is the God who pursues you. That's the God you can trust. So I'll ask you again, what is it in your life where you're resisting God and you're saying, God, I will not give this up. Because that's the conversation point. I've talked to hundreds of people. They want maturity in their life. But they're stuck. And you know why they're stuck? Because they have not got past what God has said to surrender. God says some basic things to them. And they say, no, 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 don't touch that but I want to go deeper. I want to praise. I'm going to sing the songs, but don't touch this God. You know what God says? You can sing all you want. You can dance. You can do what. I'm bringing you back to this conversation, and God's bringing us back to this conversation this morning. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? And I would like you to have a conversation with God. And you know what it is. And you know what to do. It's called surrender. It's called waving the white flag and saying, God, I give it up. For the good of my own life, for the long view, I surrender. I give it. To you. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of this moment, we know what it is, where the conversation is, and we need to surrender. And I pray that in this holy moment, in this atmosphere of peace and safety, I pray your people would be willing to surrender. I pray they'd be willing to give it over and give it up and find that you really are enough. And so that we could sing that song with enthusiasm and with integrity that Jesus Christ is enough. Father, fill us with your Spirit, give us power to do what we know we should. And strengthen us this week to live to our commitments. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?